as our youngers go, I'm actually going to give a little parental advisory. Uh, I mentioned this last week, and I'll mention it again this week. Uh, Esther chapter 2 covers the realities of, of, of the historical setting we find ourselves in uh, and the situation Esther finds herself in in the king's harem and the activities that occur uh, as such. So uh, we have our middle schoolers and up in here with us each Sunday, and I love that, and I think that is fine and appropriate this morning, but nonetheless, thought it'd be good to give you parents an advisory that uh, we will handle this as well as possible, but we will look at these realities. So uh, if, you're, if you're a parent in dialogue with your children about the birds and the bees, we're going to be just fine. If you're a parent who's willing to be in discussion with your child about uh, God's plan for sexuality versus the things that we see in our culture... Um, then, and, and in the culture of Esther's day, uh, then, then you're set to go. And if not, if you'd rather not deal with those, some of those realities, feel free to slip out. You won't hurt my feelings. I'll even pray in a moment, and that would give you an opportunity. <laughs> and in a few minutes, we're going to show a video, and that would give you an opportunity. So, so far, so good? And if you're new with us, Welcome. I don't normally start sermons with a parental advisory. (laughs) Father God, we need you, as always, no matter the topic each Sunday, we need you to be our teacher. And so, God, as we come to you and as we look to your word now, we submit ourselves, hearts and minds, to be taught by you, by the power of your spirit. Would you show us what you have for us this morning? Uh, Not that we might gain knowledge, not just that we would know a story, but that we would be changed into the into the image of Christ more and more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are, Esther chapter 2. We find ourselves, if we are transporting ourselves back, if we are putting ourselves in the story, which I often encourage you to do as you read the Bible, if you put yourself in the story, it becomes much more interesting. It becomes much more helpful to think about what's happening. And we would, if you put yourself in the story this morning, you would find yourself in the Persian Empire. We started this uh, historical story last week. Setting in 483 BC. And in chapter 1, we met King Xerxes or Ahasuerus. Some of our Bibles say Xerxes, some say Ahasuerus is the same guy. I'll kind of use those two terms interchangeably. This was a powerful king, a prideful king, a ruthless, uh, even evil king. And in chapter 1, when we studied last Sunday, uh, he threw a very long party. Anybody remember how long? 180 days, six-month party, plus another one-week party, plus Queen Vashti threw a party. And this involved Xerxes showing off his wealth and power before thousands of people and and supplying thousands of partygoers with uh, unlimited refills of their red solo cups. And as a result of this partying, King Xerxes had an IUI, an idea under the influence. He thought... This is a great party. Let's invite my strikingly gorgeous wife to attend this party uh, wearing her crown. So King Xerxes thought this was a good idea. (laughs) But Queen Vashti's answer, as you may remember, uh, let me think about it. No. No, I won't come and parade myself around in front of thousands of drunk men for entertainment purposes. Her refusal last week was considered disrespect. It was considered to be a bad example. The king was furious. 
and declared an edict that would banish Vashti, Queen Vashti, from his presence. She was never to appear before him again. Now we find ourselves in chapter 2. So follow along with me. We're going to be in and out of our Bibles. So I want you to be in there with me. Uh, Esther chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done, what had been decreed against her. The beginning of verse 1 says, after these things. Uh, this seems to be, best we can tell, a couple years later. This is an angry dude. This is a grudge holder. If this is a couple years later, and now it says, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated. Uh, and in the meantime, the historical record tells us that between chapter 1 and now, uh, not only has he banished his queen, but Ahasuerus has suffered brutal military defeat. Uh, in 4, uh, where is it, in 480 B.C., uh, um, he was defeated in a, in a huge naval battle in 479. He came home licking his wounds after being routed. And so now we find ourselves in chapter 2, and he thinks, oh, my anger maybe finally has gone away. And he remembers Vashti. And what he had done. Verse 2. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their, let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. So the king finds himself with no queen. The kingdom finds itself with no queen. And they need to come up with a plan to replace the queen. And, uh, and in such an important situation, uh, this group of male, young, buffoon advisors... Their idea to replace the queen is, oh, the Miss Persia pageant. Verse 4, and let the women, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And if you are reading between the lines of that phrase, pleases the king, you are right on track and we'll, we'll deal with that a bit more. When we imagine this bizarre, uh, ugly scenario we may want to ask the question, are things getting out of hand? When, when we come to situations, when we encounter ruthless evil like Xerxes, we may wonder, has this somehow spun out of God's control? Are things getting out of hand? When things in my life seem bad, when I find myself trapped in repeated sin behaviors, when I find myself on the victim end of abuse, we could ask that question. When you find yourselves, when many of you find yourselves in difficult things that life brings about, suffering and pain, when you find yourself in a broken relationships, that relationships that can't be healed or that, that, are, that are struggling, some of you are facing 
severe financial hardship. And it might be easy to go, are things getting out of hand? I love God. What's happening? Where is he? When we have our runaway sin issues or or in other situations of pain and suffering and illness, we might want to ask, where is God in this? And one of the best things that we'll see as we study God's word in the book of Esther is that nothing is out of God's hands. Nothing is out of God's hands. And one of the things we want to do is I'm going to put the definition of providence on the screen now because this is something that we want to think about and understand as we see the story of Esther unfold. The definition of God's providence or the fact that we refer to God as providential, his providential control. Although often hidden and invisible, although he is often out of sight and behind the scenes, God sees all and his hand directs all things and all people. How? For his glory and our good. In this case, in this story, God is working through things like Xerxes, bitterness and anger. God is working despite Xerxes' haste and stupidity and and, and his advisor's suggestion of how to find a new queen. God is at work for his glory and our good, even in this mess. He, the, the, the advisors decide to, to put on this contest to find a queen who is better. Why? Because God wants someone who is better. Psalm 139 is, is, is a great psalm. If you want to write it down, Later today, open to Psalm 139, read the whole thing. Amazing. But here's one verse from it on the screen. Psalm 139, verse 16. All the days ordained for me were written in God's book before one of them came to be. God directs all things. Nothing, friends, you're with me this morning? Nothing is out of his hands. Do you know that? That God is good and loving and providential? And do you believe that nothing is out of his hands? Back to the word, verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives that were carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Now, I want us to get the historical context, and so we're going to do this again. We did this last week, and better than me explaining to you what's the biblical events leading up to this period of time that we meet Mordecai and Esther, I want to play a video for you. If you were here last week, it's a repeat. That's okay. It's good. It'll help you get set in the historical setting. And if you missed it, you get to check it out. Let's see uh, what leads up to uh, these events that we're studying in our Bibles.
my great-grandparents told me stories of a mighty dragon that descended on the holy temple. The people had rebelled against God. I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshiped the work of their own hands. In his anger, God turned his people over to the fearsome enemy, King Nebuchadnezzar, the dragon of Babylon, through whom the fury of God burned against my people. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured me. He has crushed me. He has made me an empty vessel. He has swallowed me up like a dragon. The tears of my people flowed like a river, but they could not quench the fires that consumed our land. Into the wilderness we were led, defeated and destroyed the God we'd forsaken. We thought he'd forsaken us. But even in our darkest moment, God would not leave or forsake his people. Once more, he made us a promise. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. For 70 years, the people of God lived in Babylon. Over time, Babylon began to wither, and a great lion rose from the east, Cyrus, the king of Persia. His armies consumed the world, he set his gaze on the remains of the great dragon's lair, Babylon. There, Cyrus led a cunning attack, and the kingdom fell. Cyrus was a great and good king, and did not believe in keeping men as slaves. During the first year of his reign, he issued a decree that freed the Jews. God stirred the hearts of his most devoted people to journey back to Jerusalem and rebuild his temple. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods, with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Cyrus, went the way of all men. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Behold, Ahasuerus, Xerxes the Great. Under Xerxes, the empire prospered, and so did the Jews who did not return to Jerusalem. 
Among these Jews was a family of the tribe of Benjamin. They gathered all they could scrape together and headed out from Babylon for the richest city the world had ever known, the Persian capital of Susa. During the journey, both the mother and father died, leaving a baby girl to Mordecai. Little did my cousin know that I would grow to be a woman the world would never forget. What I find so helpful about that video is that it sets the story that we're studying in our Bibles of Esther in historical reality. This is, this is not a, a, a fictional storybook. This is not a fairy tale that we study. This is real people in a real world, in real countries, uh, in real crisis. Uh, and we get to hear what God has in store, what we can learn from him. So we met Mordecai already in verse 5, and now if you'll, you'll um, allow me, let's skip down to verse 21. We're going to come back to what's in between there, but I want to complete what we know about Mordecai kind of all at once here. We met Mordecai back in verse 5, and now let's look at verse 21. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh... Two of the king's eunuchs who guarded Big Thana and Teresh. I think if I had bodyguards, I'd want them to be named Big Thana and Teresh. They sound scary, don't they? In those days, as Mordecai was sitting by the gate, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold became angry, and they sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther... And Esther, oh, you're not supposed to know she's queen yet. Shh. We'll find that out in a minute. And he told it to Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. Ruthless Xerxes and what, you, what happens when you cross ruthless Xerxes. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So if you were Xerxes in that situation, how would you feel about Mordecai? What had Mordecai just done for you? Saved your life. How would we be feeling about Mordecai? Well, at this point in the story, it seems, by God's design, Xerxes seems to forget all about Mordecai, where he got this uh, news of this plot against him. Mordecai does the right thing, but it doesn't seem like anybody cares or notices. And if you think about that, I bet many of you, like me, can relate to that. Find ourselves at times doing the right thing, making the hard choice, and, and no one seems to notice or care. And a, a friend pointed out to me that Mordecai may have gone unnoticed unrewarded in the eyes of the human king, Xerxes, but not only was what Mordecai, what Mordecai did recorded in these king, the king's books that we just wrote, but Mordecai's actions were seen and observed and recorded by our capital K king, 
as well. Nothing goes unnoticed by the true king. It seems like Mordecai had done the right thing and no one cared or noticed it and Xerxes wasn't thankful. But nothing goes unnoticed by the true king. And that should be an encouragement to you as a follower of Jesus to, to, uh, to live for him in all that you do in, in, in difficult circumstances at risk, at personal risk. But to do the right thing knowing that our true and great king notices. Psalm 147 says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. His, his understanding goes, is, is without limit. Our God sees you and knows you. Now verse 7, now we meet her. Now we meet Esther, who the story is named after, who the book of the Bible is named after. Verse 7, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, that's her Hebrew name, her Jewish name, whom he had brought up. He had raised her because she had neither father nor mother. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. So this orphan being raised by her older cousin as if he was a father. The young woman had a beautiful figure, the Bible emphasizes, and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed to gather in all the beautiful young virgins in the kingdom, when, when this edict was proclaimed, when many young women, probably even teens, were being gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. This is one of those places where the Bible gives us facts, but we don't necessarily get insight into feelings. And so what exactly is the situation here? How was Esther and these other women taken into custody? It may not have actually been a real bad situation to be in, living in the king's palace three squares a day, etc. It may not have been um, by, by a ton of force. But it may have been. Verse 9. And the young woman pleased him. Uh, now it's talking about Haggai, not the king. The, the, the man that's in charge of the women in the harem. The young woman, Esther, pleased him. And look at this phrase. Won his favor. Tuck that away because we'll keep thinking about that. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced Esther, promoted her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred. In other words, her identity as a Jew. Esther had not made known her people or kindred for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, having seen in verse 10 that she's keeping her identity secret, let's look also at verse 20. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. So 
Uh, let's pause for a minute and think about this, that in this situation, we might wonder, why are we getting that detail? Why is she keeping her identity secret? Why are they not willing to be known as Jews? Uh, what's the deal here? And I, I would like us to ask the question, how strong is her faith in God? Are Mordecai and Esther walking closely with their God? And again, this is a, this is a, this is a Bible uh, book where we get lots of facts and places and what happened, but we don't necessarily get a lot of insight into Esther's heart and motivations and desires. And so this is just opinion. This is just me speculating, uh, not something that we get explicitly from the text, but it seems to me to indicate that they are not walking closely with their God. And why would I say that? Well, remember in the video... God's people had been exiled out of the promised land, out of, away from Jerusalem and taken into captivity in Babylon. And then along came King Cyrus, a good king, who said, I don't keep slaves, you all can go home. And so it would seem that devout Jews, that, that God's people that were walking closely with him, would take the opportunity to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, God's very dwelling place. But some Jews, Mordecai and Esther's family among them, found themselves still in the Persian Empire. And not only still in Babylon, but instead of going one direction toward Jerusalem, they actually went further into Persia, so to speak, and moved to Susa, the capital. And last week we talked a little bit about the potential to be assimilated into that culture. You know, am I just going to... Am I just going to live in this culture and kind of be absorbed and sort of be anonymous and look like those around me so that I can get by? Was that what was happening to the Jews that remained and did not return to Jerusalem? And you might say, well, maybe they stayed there for, to be a blessing, to be a, a light in the darkness. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be great. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3 says that God commands his people to be a blessing to all peoples, right? So yes, them in Susa and us today in our world and culture, we are called to be a blessing to all the nations as we live among them. But, but Esther and Mordecai are keeping silent. They're not living out their identity as God's people. Mordecai allows Esther to be taken. Esther... Uh, falls into sin, as we'll soon see here in a moment. Are they living for God? Or are they hiding their faith, giving in to the pressures of their culture? Are we, are you and me, living for our God in all that we do? Or are we hiding our faith, giving in to the pressures of our culture? Verse 12. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into, the king, into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the, for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for the women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, 
She was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. Okay. Our Sunday school teachers may have appropriately boiled this down to a beauty pageant for age-appropriate reasons, right? And I, when I watch the VeggieTales version <laughs> of Esther, for age-appropriate reasons, this situation was boiled down to a talent competition where Esther sang. Unfortunately, this text in, the, in our Bible, God's word, in the original language in which it was, it was written, this text doesn't allow us to think innocently or naively about Esther and these other women and the situation they found themselves in. These verses are loaded in the original language with sexual innuendo. She went in during the evening. And she came out the next morning. And if we're honestly studying our word and seeing what we can learn from it, it's okay to acknowledge the fact that uh, this, the talent portion of this competition was not tap dancing. And what would please the king was not good conversation. She would not go in. And then we get this insight into what Esther and all these other young women faced as they're paraded in there night after night, one by one, we get a glimpse. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. This is a sad, abusive situation. This is King Xerxes getting the opportunity to have trial wives who were likely discarded and never seen or heard from again and, and live the rest of their life out as a concubine in the king's palace. This is a story about uh, abuse, about a self-indulgent king who is orchestrating things for his own selfish desires and lusts, pleasing himself and what, what, what he wants. This is a story about uh, a culture obsessed with outward appearances. And we, and we sometimes want to go, ugh, how disgusting. We're so much more cultured than that. But the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. If we take a hard look at ourselves and our culture, there is still abuse. There is still objectification of women. There are still us that, those of us that struggle with self-indulgent, giving in to our own pleasures and desires and lusts for our own preferences. There are still struggles among us of standing for too long in front of the mirror each morning obsessed with our outward appearance. And as someone 
as someone who has been both sinned against and who continues to fall short of God's glory, let me remind you, friends, that Jesus can set you free. That the power of sin and death and, and, and sin's hold on you and evil perpetrated against you is conquered by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That true life is found in Jesus. That forgiveness is found in Jesus. That victory over sin is found in Jesus. We sang a little while ago, the Son that sets us free, or those set free by the Son are free indeed. I butchered that lyric. We could work on that later. <laughs> Jesus can set you free, friends, if these are your struggles. If, if some of the things we just listed as happening during Xerxes' time are, are happening in your life as a part of your sin or sin against you, God sees you and knows you, and Jesus rescues you. Verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the, ector, uh, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go in to the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor. In the eyes of all who saw her. Did we read something like that a few minutes ago? That she's finding favor? Verse 16, And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus in his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tabeth, in the seventh year of his reign, let me, let me interject that there's three, three options for what happens next. She goes in in the evening, and she comes out in the morning. And the situation that Esther and these other young women found themselves in is this. They go in in the evening, they come out in the morning, and one of maybe about three things could happen. Number one, he, Xerxes would never summon them again, and they would live out the rest of their lives as a king's concubine in the second harem, robbed of the opportunity to marry, robbing all the men of the kingdom of these young women of marrying age, Another option would be that, that King Xerxes actually does summon you again, and now you're sort of upgraded from concubine to one of his many wives. Or, in this case, if we, as we've read in our story, uh, eventually the plan was to choose a queen. Are things getting out of hand? Is God in this? I have two daughters. Many of you have daughters. Why is this craziness part of Esther's life? This is a vile, weird process. Are things getting out of hand? Are things getting away from God? Has God got the world spinning on his hand and then, oops, sorry about that, Esther. Where is he? Verse 17. And the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor. We see this repeatedly. That she finds favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that she, so that he, Xerxes, set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. 
And then the king did what the king did best and gives another party. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. And as part of the celebration, he also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Are things getting out of hand? Why is this part of Esther's story? And I want to propose to you, I want to have a see as we study this book of the Bible. The answer is no. Things are not getting away from God. The answer is no. Nothing. This is nothing but God's providence. This is nothing but God in control of all things and all people and all circumstances. Ephesians 1 verse 11 tells us that God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In other words, all that we've read to this point in the book of Esther is is God's work. It's his grace that that gives Esther favor. It's his uh, work that causes Esther to be promoted within the harem. It's God's work that she finds approval of the king. It's God's work that she becomes queen. Now let me remind you one more time. This is a historical, uh, factual, nonfiction, true story. Okay? And I say that God is at the middle of it. And if we are tempted to think of of this story, if we're tempted to look at some of these circumstances, and if we're tempted to think of some of the things that have happened, and we're going to write them off as, uh, this is just kind of like lucky. Esther gets lucky. Or or we're going to write it off to uh, chance or fate or circumstance. We might be tempted to look at this story and think, ah, coincidence. But if we think that way, if we're wondering if that's the case with this story of Esther, then we, then we think things like this. Well, Esther just happens to be beautiful. Esther just happens to be favored by the king. Esther just happens to be Jewish, which is the identity of the people who need rescuing. Mordecai just happens to save the king's life. Two chapters into this book, God still hasn't been mentioned directly. He seems absent, but God is clearly behind it all. This is nothing but God's providence. If you're into grammar or you like studying language, things about the original language, maybe you'll like this little tidbit. When the people smarter than me studied this passage, they wrote this, the passive voice is used frequently throughout the story, suggesting, listen to this, the way the grammar was, suggested that the, uh, that the characters are caught up in events by some unseen force that has ultimate control. You think? Who? God, of course. Our great God, of course, is acting according to his purposes. Remember, we looked at the definition of providence. It'll be on the screen again. Although God is sometimes hidden and invisible and working behind the scenes, he sees all and his hands direct all things and all people to his glory and our good. So what was Esther's part in all this? Why did God choose her? Was she really living for God? Was she pursuing a holy life? Was she obeying his commands? Not really. 
Not at this point in the story. And, oh, let me sneak this in there. That's why as we study our Bibles, we don't make the human people in the stories into the heroes. The hero of the book of Esther is not Esther. The, book, the hero of the book of Esther is our great God who is at work behind the scenes. Because at this point, let's be honest, at this point, Esther has committed sexual sin. Now, we, we don't totally know if there was, how was she taken? Was it by force? I, I, I don't know exactly, but she's committed sexual sins, sexual union outside of, of God's best. God's best being marriage between a man and a woman. And then, even if, if we're not sure about how that situation happened, in being named queen, queen, Esther then marries the king, a Jewish, God's, part of God's family, chooses to go through with marrying this pagan, non-religious, non-God-following king. Could she have said no? Hmm. Vashti did. Are things getting out of hand? Is Esther going to mess up God's plan? Is her sin and Xerxes' ruthlessness and Mordecai's shortcomings going to somehow goof up what God has in mind? Nothing derails God's, God from accomplishing his purposes. If, there, if, we don't see, if we don't see anything else as we study this, this story, we should see that. That nothing derails God from accomplishing his purpose. Isaiah 46 on the screen says, tells us that it is God who is declaring the end from the beginning. It is God who knows the difference from ancient times to things not yet done. It is God who says, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. A pastor and author named Tim Keller wrote this, and it's on the screen. No matter how you've made mistakes early in your life, God can redeem your life. When you think God can't use you, you're not getting the message of the Bible. Instead, you're imposing your own message on the Bible. Here's what you're thinking. You're assuming the message of the Bible is... God blesses and saves those who live morally exemplary lives. That's not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is that God persistently and continuously gives his grace to the people that don't ask for it, don't deserve it, and don't even fully appreciate it after they get it. And I say amen too because that's me. Though to a great degree, we are in the beauty treatments of the world, being assimilated into our culture. To a great degree, we are combines in the, concubines in the world system, but God hasn't given up on us. We need God. You and I fall short. We live torn between living for him and, and, and being assimilated into our culture. And yet, God pursues and he offers you his grace, his love, his rescue plan through his son, Jesus. So friends, follow Jesus. Not just once, but every day. 
and be open to his transforming work in your life, to making all things new, because nothing derails God from accomplishing his purposes for his glory and, and our good. Nothing derails God, not even Esther's sin, not even your sin, not even the sin that's been perpetrated against you. Nothing derails God. What is happening with Esther is not a mistake. Things have not gotten out of God's hands. And I'm going to close by reading this from one of the, from one of the people I studied this week. Here is hope. Listen, friends, ready? Here is hope. For all those who find themselves in difficult circumstances in the present because of their past sin and compromise, here is hope for people who married a non-Christian husband or wife even though they knew it was wrong, the person who chose a career based on all the wrong motivations, or who have wasted a lifetime in pursuit of the wrong goals, the person that person can discover that God is sovereign even over those sinful choices and wasted opportunities. Perhaps God has brought us to where we are today so that we can serve him in a unique way. If so, that doesn't make those wrong decisions and sinful actions right, but it should, give us, but it should cause us to give thanks to God that he is able to form beautiful pictures out of our smudged and stained efforts. Past failures do not write us out of a significant part in God's script for the future. Father God, we thank you for an opportunity to study your word this morning. And we look forward to continuing to see how you are going to use Esther despite her sin, despite the evil circumstances that surrounded her. God, we come to you knowing that we too need your grace we come to you knowing that we fall short, that we have had poor motivation, that we have been too willing to be assimilated into the culture around us instead of boldly living for you. And so, God, we thank you, we praise you, we rejoice this morning at the good news that our past shortcomings and our past sins and the sins against us haven't disqualified us from you using us. We thank you, we rejoice, we look to you, wanting to live for you today and moving forward, thankful that you are still pursuing us, still coming after us, still working in our lives according to your glory and for our good. And God, we look forward to seeing how you work through Esther to rescue your people. We look forward to seeing how those circumstances are not coincidence, but your providence. And so would you give us new eyes this morning into our own lives and the ways in which you're at work, although sometimes hidden, sometimes invisible, sometimes we seem, we think, we're not sure if you're absent, God. But help us to rely on the truth of your providence that you are at work and that nothing has gotten out of your hands. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.